You know, uh, this whole thing that we've been emphasizing last week, this week, next week of marriage is, as you know, just like a little interlude that every January and every September will have a certain theme that family ministry will be promoting. And it's not meant to pull us out of where we've been going in Isaiah. It's more like a parenthesis for a couple of weeks where we just take a focus here from the pulpit on some topic like marriage or in the fall it might be prayer or whatever the focus is for our families. And um, my hope is, is that if I know many of you were not able to be here last week, I won't ask for a show of hands because I was and I know how many people weren't because of the weather. And so uh, I just want to encourage you to make a point to either download, the pod, uh, download that sermon as a podcast that you can listen to going to work or watch it on the computer. It was a really, really good sermon. And the, the idea behind it was uh, that John Avery was sharing with us is why does marriage matter? And today we're going to look at what is it about marriage that matters? What is it that God says is the means to make a marriage work? What, what is it that's at the heart of marriage? Uh, and next week, Dennis is going to share with us what, uh, how to make marriage work. So it's kind of a why, what, and how series. How to make marriage be what God wants it to be. And so today, to that end, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 5. And if you're anything like I am in this regard, when marriage comes up and someone mentions Ephesians chapter 5, it is the most common passage I've ever heard anybody talk on when it comes to marriage. But as I've been studying this and thinking through the normal verses that people go to, which we'll look at briefly towards the end of our time, what has occurred to me as I've studied it again is I sometimes have had a tendency to look at Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 through 33 as if it's sort of a separate message, almost like God dropped down a message from a blimp and just said, oh, I haven't been talking to you lately about marriage. Let me tell you what to do about marriage. As if it's a brand new topic. Because he hasn't mentioned it in the book before. So the tendency is to think, well, if we're going to talk about marriage, let's go to verse 22. It's where everybody starts. But what has struck me is I just don't think that was God's intent at all. So where we're going to spend the majority of our time is in a passage that doesn't ever mention marriage. It doesn't ever mention husbands. It doesn't ever marriage wives. But it is marriage instruction. It actually sets us up for understanding what God's heart for marriage is and what he wants to be at the core of it. And I'll begin reading in chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Actually, the rest of the chapter is all about that. The rest of the chapter, everything including the familiar passages to wives and to husbands, all of it is about what I just read. Be an imitator of God as, a beloved, child, as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you. So everything else we're going to look at today is going to hinge back on this. This is the kickoff in God's mind. But notice a little uh, phrase there. It says, we're to be an imitator of God, but notice it says, as beloved children. And I just think before we say anything about marriage and before we go any further, it's really important to, to get this. Every book in the Bible has an audience. Every book in the Bible is directed at certain people. 
Well, in this particular book, it's clearly directed to people who are called children of God. They're also known as saints. They're also known as believers. They're also known as in Christ. Back in chapter 1 of Ephesians and chapter 2 of Ephesians, he has repeatedly explained to us that we are in Christ now. And that's not necessarily true for everybody here. Um, I went to a church for many, many, many years without understanding the gospel, so how could I be in Christ? But I think it's really important when we look at those words, as beloved children, to just ask the question, what does he mean as a beloved child? Back in chapter 2, in this same book, Paul wrote something that God used as one of the two verses that actually made me a child of God um, 44 years ago. He said, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so no man can boast. What God was saying is, if you're a Christian, the only way you got there was by faith, and the only way you got there was by God's grace. The only way to be made a child of God is, you, is if you believe something. And, and, and that something that you believed is John's gospel in chapter 1 says this. He came to his own, talking about Jesus. He came to his own, and in this case his own was the nation of Israel. He came to his own, but his own received him not. But to as many as did receive him, to them he, became, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Well, you can't have, it says there that you become a child of God. In other words, I used to think growing up that everybody's a child of God because God loves everybody and he's made everybody and, and so he's their father. And, and in one sense, that's true. He did make everybody. He does love everybody enough to send Christ to die for everybody's sins. So yes, uh, in that sense, but in the biblical sense, you're not a child of God merely because, because Christ died for your sins. You're not a child of God merely because you were born into the world. And so I think it's really important to make sure before you go any further, because if you're not yet a child of God, I'm, I'm speaking to those of you for a moment to just say what we would want and we believe God would want is for the gospel to be clear for you. Maybe today could even be a time where you say, you know, I've understood that there was a God and I've understood that I am a sinner and I've understood about Jesus going to the cross, but I haven't known how to add it all together. Because that's what it was like for me as a young adult. And my hope is that you'll understand he's offering eternal life to you. If you recognize that you're a sinner and you deserve the judgment of God, you're not the worst sinner there's ever been, but you're bad enough. And if you recognize Jesus died on the cross so that you wouldn't have to pay for your sins. And when he was raised from the dead, it was proof positive that what he said was true. I offer eternal life to those who believe on me. And my hope is that'll be you. So, having said that, go back to chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Because he's told us already that's what we are. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. I think we'll see in a moment that this passage is really interesting. Instead of looking at Ephesians chapter 5, 24, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, all by itself, really when we get to that passage towards the very end today, what we'll realize is God has already given us all kinds of marriage instruction. 
And what's interesting is if you didn't have a, a Bible like this, if you had a Bible like the original Bible from when the Apostle Paul wrote this, um, there wouldn't have been a chapter 5. It was just like a letter. It just kind of went on. It was just another paragraph. Well, in a previous paragraph, shortly before chapter 5 and verse 1, this is what it said. It said in verse 22, you have laid aside the old self. That happened when you became a Christian. Whether you knew it or not, he's telling us things we don't necessarily know. If you have trusted in Christ, the moment you trusted Christ, you laid aside an old self. And he says, and you have put on a new self in verse 24. Well, guess what? Everything that happens after those verses in the rest of chapter 4 and chapter 5 is God's way of saying, don't continue to be like you were in your old self. And do continue to be what you should be in the new self. So what he's doing is he's going to talk about positives and negatives. The negatives are, here are the things that were true when you were in the when you were of an old self, this is what it was like. Put that away because it's not who you are anymore. You'll see that. This passage shows that. Put that away. And then he says, but instead, pursue these things because you are a new person. You're a child of God. Watch how he does this. Watch how he, he, goes, away, he goes towards a positive and away from a negative. And he does it all through the chapter. Watch this. Therefore, as imitators of God, as beloved children, walk in love. There's the first positive. Walk in love as an imitator of God, just as Christ loved you. In other words, the first counsel for marriage for me, John, you're married to Diane, 37 years, imitate God in all of your relations with her. Be like God. Walk in love with her. Verse 3 but here's something to step away from. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not be name, even named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting. You see, in darkness, I was immoral. I was impure. I was greedy. In darkness, I was filthy with speech. In darkness, I did have coarse jesting. That was characteristic of the old self. Maybe not for you, it was for me. But as a new self, what God's saying is, John, instead of doing what came naturally to you the way you were, I want you to be putting something different on. I want you to be more focused on her than on yourself. And that's what I'm to be growing in from that point forward because that's what he says, walk in love like Christ did who didn't, wasn't giving his thought about himself. Before you even get to the command to the husband to do what he's supposed to do or before you get to the command to the wife about what she's supposed to do uniquely and he gives this command what you're supposed to do with everybody, it's... If there is immorality among you and impurity among you and greed among you, lay it aside. You know and I know that's a lot easier said than done, but I know this. I know this. If I hold private places in my heart, if I hold dark corners that I allow to be the same, 
I treat people the way I used to before I, I knew Christ. And it doesn't start looking better. I don't start looking more like I'm imitating God. I'm not applying this word. And so what he's saying is, John, I want this to be continually put away from you that you might grow in purity and grow in not being greedy. And, and your speech. I mean, I remember when I married Diane 37 years ago, I really liked her. She's really a great gal. She still is. But she needed to learn a few things. <laughs> you know? Um, she had a really bad sense of humor. She didn't understand that sarcasm and put down and little critical speech was totally fine. It had been for me. It worked for me for 25 years. What's her problem? And so I hoped I could coach her out of that. Thank God I couldn't. Thank God that though she didn't try to force me or change me out of the things that were inappropriate, she didn't give in to that way of thinking. Because somehow already in her heart she knew some truths I didn't know. Such as that filthiness, silly talk, and coarse jesting have no place rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, no immoral or impure person or covetous man who's an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. In other words, if I were to continue as a believer in Christ with filthiness and silly talk and coarse jesting, if as a believer I continue to walk in immorality, I continue to walk in impurity, if I continue to have a greedy heart that doesn't grow to become more and more thankful but instead remains covetous. I will have no inheritance when I reach heaven. There will be no reward for faithfulness. And for some of us, that doesn't sound like a bad deal. I believe the scripture actually teaches that it will lead to weeping. It'll lead to weeping. And there's biblical evidence of that. When the Bible says that every tear will be wiped away, it's after that. It's it's after that judgment. But there is a coming a judgment for Christians that we don't have time to go into in great detail. And what he's saying here is such a person who's living in this way, even though she or he is a Christian, has no inheritance from God. In other words, there's nothing. They come in empty-handed rather than being able to enjoy what God had intended Christians to enjoy. See, God's intention for you was never merely to get you to heaven. His intention was to make you like his son. That's why he's saying, beginning from chapter 4, since you have put off the old self and you've put on a new self, do some things in your relationship because if you do, you'll become more like Christ. That's what he's doing. You see this? He says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In other words, God doesn't take these things lightly. How many times have you heard Christians who say, well, everybody does that? You know, it's just really common. Whatever the it is. To speak to your spouse that way. To speak to your children that way to treat other people that way, to do those things in the dark. And what he's saying is, I want you to know, those things actually are the very things that bring about God's wrath. Therefore, 
And by the way, remember this. Mark said this years ago. I think it was just a great point. It was just almost like an aside, but he made the point. Remember, anytime you see God command Christians of something, it's because they're, or command them away from something, it's because they're capable of it. In other words, God isn't going to make a command in the Bible to tell you don't do something that you don't have the potential to do. And sometimes we live or talk as if, well, Christians wouldn't do this. You know, we'll, what, look what he says. He says, do not be partakers with them. Well, don't worry, a Christian can't do that. That's his precise point. I'm writing to you as a, as a child of God, do not be a partaker with them. Why? He goes on to prove, he goes on to make the point. Because you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Therefore, walk as children of light. In other words, what God is saying is, when I saved you, I didn't save you so that you would be a saved person who just looks the same 40 years later. That would be as silly as if you went into a room and turned on a light switch and said, good, I accomplished it. No one ever goes into a room merely to turn on a light. You go into a room to do something and you turn on the light for the purpose of being able to do it, right? Well, it's the same way when you're saved. God turned on a light for you. He showed you that you're a sinner. He showed you you deserve his judgment. He showed you that he loved you so much he sent his son to die in your place so you wouldn't have to pay for your own sins. He offered you the free gift of eternal life. That was the light going on. But folks, when you believe that offer, that's all you've done. You've just turned on the light. You haven't accomplished a thing. And when he saves you or me, when he saves a kid or a woman or a man, when he does that, he does it because he's got things he's looking forward to. I mean, it's just his gift. You get to go to heaven. But now, guess what? I get to make you more like my son. And just watch what happens when you do. But my sakes, how many times do I just continue to stagnate in that thing that I was in? When he saved me. And if that happens, I'll be of no use to him. There will be no inheritance for me to enjoy or for him to enjoy with me. There will be a loss, actually an experience of loss. And he goes on and he says this. In verse 10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And isn't that interesting? Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. I believe that's really like a summary for the previous nine verses. What he's saying, he hasn't even gotten to marriage yet, and yet he's instructing me as a married man. John, all I really want you to do, I just want you to try to learn what's pleasing to me. That's all I want. Because, John, if you could learn what was pleasing to me, you'd be a great husband. You'd be more selfless. You'd be more humble. You'd be more honoring and respectful. You'd be more grateful. Just learn what is pleasing to me. You know, I personally believe that if we understood chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 19, or verse 21 rather, if we understood that and followed that, we wouldn't even need the marriage instruction that comes in the end part of the chapter. For years when I thought about marriage, for years when I thought about family, I had to go straight to verse 22 because, boy, I learned things I had never learned. And by, folks, I've appreciated, I've learned a lot from those verses. They're important, but I'll be honest with you. If I had actually watched carefully verses 1 through 21 and just done that, 
the things that come after it would have come naturally to me. Because the verses are, that are for everybody, the verses that are for every Christian, will make her a really good wife and will make him a really good husband. That's just a fact. And where I am not a good husband, in the places I'm not yet a godly husband, it isn't ultimately even because I haven't adequately done verses 22 and following. I mean, it might be. There might be a shortcoming there, but I'll be honest. There's somewhere I'm missing the boat on 1 through, through 21. So the marriage instruction is really just a, it's basically like, almost like God is going, oh, by the way, as if what I've given you isn't enough, which it of course is, I'm just going to just throw one message for wives and one message for husbands. But honestly, it's like a P.S. He has actually already taught me how to be a dad. Now, he's still going to go ahead and give me another verse back in Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm grateful for that. I'm glad I'm going to get instruction from God about being a dad. I'm glad I'm going to get instruction about being a husband in 22 and following. But you know what? God is saying, I am giving you everything you need right here. Just try to please what, find out what's pleasing to the Lord. And then verse 11, he goes back to the do not. Notice, by the way, this is often the Christian life. And it's often the Bible. God tells us things not to do and he tells us things to do. Why? Because I need to know what to walk away from and what to walk towards. If all people do is tell me what good thing to believe or one good thing to do, honestly, I'll go, yep, yep, that makes sense, yep, yep. But I haven't been warned. I haven't been helped to lay things aside. And then if I have people who all they do is say, don't do this and don't do this and don't do this and don't do this, if it's all this whole thing of don't, I don't have a thing to look forward to because dadgummit, as soon as you tell me what not to do, I'll notice that in my heart I did it. And God in his grace says, I'm better than all of that. I am not merely about a bunch of rules of what to do and a bunch of rules of what not to do. I mean, there are things I want out of you, of course. But what I'm really doing is just telling you, don't participate. And, and that's the idea of a present progressive tense. Don't go on participating in unfruitful deeds of darkness. Instead, even expose them. Meaning, when you're living a godly life, do you realize that evil will actually show up? When you're living a godly life, evil will be in contrast to it. Don't be surprised, and let there be a warning. If by God's grace, somehow, you're finding out how to live a godly life, and you're living a life that he could claim to be honorable, guard yourself and watch yourself, because you will see evil, and you will have a temptation, just like I do, to judge it, and to be proud, and to be self-righteous. And then you end up losing all the gain you had. So... Anyway, there, there is that sense in which when I'm not participating in deeds, have you ever had anybody say, I'm sorry to you after they cuss? You know, you're just talking and they let out a string of expletives and then they say, well, I'm sorry. And I, just, I always say to them the same thing. Don't apologize to me. I'm not the one who's offended. Just talk to God about it. I mean, he's the one that our lips are ultimately before. For it is even disgraceful to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, awake sleeper, arise from the dead. Christ will shine in you. What that's referring to as Christian, do you realize how 
easy it is for you as a believer to continue to participate in the things that you ought not participate in with your mouth, with your heart, with your behaviors. And what he's saying is don't do that. Wake up. Let Christ shine on you. In other words, let him forgive you. Let him, let him, let him uh, stimulate that new heart. And if this is all beyond you, it may be you just have to ask the question that we started with at the beginning. Lord, do I know you? Do I even understand? And if you're not sure, there'll be people up here to talk with after the service, so please talk to them. But for the majority of us in a Bible-teaching church like this, the majority of us know exactly what I'm referring to. And he says in verse 15, therefore, in other words, in culmination of everything I've just gotten through saying, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Why does he tell me as a husband to walk as, not as an unwise man, but as a wise? It's because I have the natural tendency to walk unwisely. He's not, he's not just pulling something out of thin air. He knows me. The Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write knows me. John, you have an inborn tendency to be unwise. Don't walk any longer as an unwise man, but rather be wise. Okay, Lord, what would that look like? I'll show you, but I want you to keep coming to me and asking that question. Making the most of your time for the days are evil. So then do not be foolish. Why? Same reason. Because you have a natural tendency to be foolish. Christian? (laughs) Don't be foolish. Rather, but, in contrast to being foolish, understand what the will of the Lord is. My goodness, there it is for the second time. Try to find out what's pleasing the Lord. Understand what the will of the Lord is. That's what we're trying to do. What is God's heart for marriage? What is the heart of God for marriage? That's this second sermon. The first one that I hope you get, why? The one next week, how? But right now, what? Well, that's exactly what he's asking you to ask. Ask him, God, show me your will. And before he ever mentions husbands and wives, he's doing it for us. Look at verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. That is breaking apart. That is breaking down your life. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. I was a Christian 20, 25 years before I ever asked God, would you please begin to show me what it means to be filled with the Spirit, because I don't have a clue. I mean, I was familiar with this verse. I quit getting drunk. I quit getting drunk after, not right after I became a Christian, but as I was growing and I realized that was something God was saying, there's no place for you getting drunk. Okay, I'll stop getting drunk. But be filled with the Spirit, I looked right over that for 25 years. I'm still learning that. What does that mean to walk in the Spirit in such a way that He fills you for His purpose? I'm still gaining that. I hope you are too. Rather, He says, instead of getting drunk with wine, in other words, rather than getting your mind in places that it doesn't need to be. Rather, let it be one that speaks to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. In other words, what he's saying is, if you actually become an imitator of God who walks in love, and if you practice laying aside the darkness that you have had a tendency to walk in, And you make a practice of walking in the light since you are a child of the light. Like he said earlier, I don't know if I skipped that, but he had said back in uh, verse 8, 
you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. In other words, he's saying that's, that's what God wants for you. That's what you went into the room and turned on the light for. But isn't it also interesting that in verse 20 he says something that he said for the second time? Always giving thanks. That's a phrase that when I run across in the Bible, my natural tendency is to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just kind of one of those religious things. Give thanks, give thanks. Yeah, go on, go on, go on. One time Mark Carey was teaching a bunch of leaders on a Monday night over pizza from the book of Romans. I went for the pizza. But he, he got in the, I think, it was, I think it was the second time that we met, he, he hit verse 8. And verse 8 says, first of all, we give thanks. And Mark stopped and he said, now isn't that something? Paul is getting ready to write the most magnificent, thorough theological treatise in the history of the world. And the first thing he wants to do is give thanks. And that kind of stunned me because I thought, what's the big deal with thanks? Well, it's apparently a big enough thing that he's already told us to do it twice. Back in verse 4 and now down here in verse 20. Apparently it's a pretty big deal. Well, Paul, Mark went on to tell us, by the way, have you ever noticed he flipped through all the epistles in the New Testament? Almost every one of them either starts or ends or starts and ends with giving thanks. Well, I had never noticed how prevalent that was. And I realized that day almost 20 years ago, I am not a champion at giving thanks. But I will tell you this, I was a champion at being critical. I was a champion at finding fault with myself as well as with others. And I believe that when he gives us some of those little instructions, even though he hasn't mentioned marriage, you find a wife who learns to practice giving thanks, or a husband who learns to practice giving thanks, you'll find they have less energy and less focus on criticism. It looks really small, but it actually plays a huge role. I want to be a giver of thanks. I want that to be part of my legacy. I'll tell you, um, up until the age of 40 or better, it wasn't even remotely close. Now we come to the passage that everybody expects when you get to marriage. And what I want you to see is this passage is actually merely an extenuation. It's just an application. It's really almost like I said, I think before, an afterthought where God says, oh, well, since I've given you all this instruction, let me just tell you wives one thing and you husbands one thing. But do you notice the verse that I left out? I skipped a verse. And for my money, I think it's the single most important verse in the whole chapter. Verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Verse 21 is a hinge verse. It means, it, uh, a hinge meaning it summarizes everything that happened in verse 1 through 20 and it precedes everything that's going to follow up through chapter 6 and verse 9. It's, a, it's like God's way of saying what I've really been getting at ever since I told you to imitate God is subject yourselves one to the other because it won't come naturally to you. And it makes all the difference in the world in human relationships if you'll do it. And he's actually going to give instructions to wives about how to do it, husbands how to do it, children how to do it, and, and fathers how to do it. We all subject ourselves. In fact, so much so that verse 22 doesn't actually have a verb. Most of us start passage on marriage, wives, subject yourselves to your own husband. That's not what it says. What it says is wives to your hus own husbands. Why? 
Well, because it's borrowing the verb from verse 21. Subject yourselves one to the other in the fear of Christ. Wives, you're to do it, and husbands, you're to do it. But there's a different way you both do it. But you both do it because it's merely an extension of what it means to imitate God. Really? Well, yeah. When Jesus came, he's the Son of God. He is very God of very God. He's the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. And he came and lived a submissive life to his Father. And if I had been Jesus and some of the people did some of the things around me that they did around him, I would have just rained down holy hell on him. I would have brought as much power and authority. I, would, I mean, I, I remember one of my kids when I was reading to them from the children's Bible when they were about three or four years old, and, and we were talking about the crucifixion. And I remember which child, it doesn't matter though, but he got so mad. He said, if I was Jesus, I would have thrown the nails right out of my wrists and thrown them right through the guys who were doing it. And, and he kept going, and I found myself going, I'm with him. <laughs> because it doesn't come naturally to do what he did because he was submitting to the Father's purpose, and it doesn't come naturally to you or to me. It does not come naturally to me to do what it says for me as a husband to do. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. That does not come naturally to me any more than it came naturally to Jesus. I would only love Diane more than I love myself. I would only lay my life down for her in whatever ways that means. That doesn't mean you do everything she wants you to do. It's not a, yes, dear. Of course, dear, you tell me what to do, dear. Because that throws off any element of leadership, which he's getting ready to say to the woman when he says, wives, to your own husbands is to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. Some of us look at this and we think, well, God just was trying to figure out what he could do to make women miserable. So I think I'll just tell her to submit herself to her husband. That sounds good. It's not that. It's that what God, the Holy Spirit, is doing through the Apostle Paul is he's saying, let me make an extension of everything I've been saying about putting other people first. And wives, for you to put somebody first in your life, it'll be that you'll subject yourself to him because of his role. Not because he deserves it, but because of his role. Why in the world is that the command that God would have asked a woman to do? We won't look there right now. We don't have the time, but the reason is actually found in Genesis 3. Because in Genesis 3, you can look there later for yourself, as soon as God is talking to Adam and he says to him, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the fruit of the tree that I told you not to? Adam does something so noble. He comes out in front and says, honey, you stay back there. And yes, I did, Lord. I did put the blame on me which, by the way, God did, because Romans 5 says sin comes through the man. So that's already been done. And he said, would you just let her start over with another guy who's a lot better for her? Because obviously I blew it, and, and I, I just I want to lay my life down for her. And, and, and I want you to have mercy on her and shift my blame, all of our blame on me. That's what he did, which is really, really noble for him to do. And I see a lot of head shaking because some of you have read the story. But do you know what? When God comes along in Ephesians and he gets to chapter 5 and tells him to imitate God and then he gets down to verse 25 and says to the husbands, that is precisely what he's commanding husbands to do. 
But we know from the story that is not what came naturally to Adam. What came naturally to Adam is, well, that woman. Do you remember the one you gave me? I really was doing fairly well with the golden retriever. Uh, I had gotten him to sit. I had gotten him to roll over. I didn't really ask for her. But the woman that you decided you would give me, well, she took from the fruit. And she gave it to me. Now, what am I supposed to do? So I ate. In other words, he threw her under the bus. And I'll be honest, I don't know about you husbands, but I know this husband. We've been doing it ever since. We've been doing it ever since. And what God does is he says, John, because you have a tendency to throw your own wife under the bus, I want you to love her like Christ did and gave himself for her. And I want you to grow in that for the rest of your life. Because if you do, the gospel will be seen in your marriage. But why did he tell wives? Submit yourself to him. Well, it's interesting. It's also in Genesis 3. Because this is what it tells you. It tells you that when God was talking to the woman after sin, he said, your desire will be for your husband. And he doesn't mean you'll like him or you just want to hang out with him or that you just want to get romantic. It's not what it means. It's a really unusual word. It's only used three times in the Old Testament. It's only used once by the author of five books, including Genesis. And it's in the very next chapter. And it's used the exact same way. It is a word that means to rule. Your desire will be to overlord him. Your desire, your built-in desire because of sin is going to be to basically tell him how the cow ate the cabbage and to put him in his place. And that will be the instinctive desire for you for the rest of, of your life. Well, isn't that interesting? If that's the case, what is the last thing you want to do if you're a wife? I know me. If my desire is to control that guy, and by the way, most of us guys could use a little controlling. My desire would be to, the one thing I wouldn't do is submit to him. That doesn't come any more naturally than laying on a cross for people who don't deserve it. In fact, it gets worse because the story goes on to say that God says to the woman, not only will your desire to be for him, but he will rule over you. And he uses a unique word, a word masal, that means to harshly have dominion. In other words, he's going to have a tendency to be an oaf and a jerk. We have an inborn tendency to run over our wives. Just be quiet. Just don't confuse me with the facts. Just leave me alone. Which is the opposite of what? Laying down your life. So what he's doing when we get to Ephesians chapter 5, and it's familiar verses of wives submit to your husbands and husbands lay your lives down for your wife and love them. He's just saying you have an inborn part of the curse of sin, which is if you ever get married, you as a wife will want to control that guy and you'll see all sorts of good reasons to do it. And you as a husband will want to avoid her or run over her and you'll see all sorts of reasons for doing it. So guess what? I just got one command for you. Imitate God. Okay, well, what does that look like? Well, what it looks like is no longer being a partaker of the darkness like you used to. All right, what else? Well, it means partake in the light in terms of giving of thanks and of, of all the other things he's commanded in chapter 4 and chapter 5. 
Okay, got that. Is there anything else? Well, yeah, just one last thing. What I want you to do for that wife of yours is love her. Love her. You disagree with her? When you handle the disagreement, will you do it in love? When you're trying to come up with a really difficult decision of what to do, will you value her opinion, but will you still be able to take leadership where it's needed? And will you have a tendency to subject yourself to her in the sense of, of not run over her and not avoid her? And wife, will you have a tendency to give your best opinion? Go ahead and give. Back in chapter 4, it says to you to speak the truth in love. Chapter 4, it says be angry, but don't sin in your anger and don't let the sun go down in your anger. So is a wife going to speak to her husband? Yes. Is she going to get angry at times? Yes. That This idea of submit doesn't mean you don't speak. It's already been addressed in chapter 4. But what it does mean is that as a wife, you are saying, I refuse to let myself run over you. I refuse to think of myself too highly. I'm going to trust God. And for that husband, even though your wife has gotten under your skin and you just want to push her away, you just want to control her, instead you're saying, I need to go back to the well. I need to go back into our room, get on my knees for a little bit with God and say, Lord, renew my heart. Because I'm a child of the light. And what I wanted to say to my wife right, right, my wife right now is what children of the dark say. I don't want to do that anymore, Lord. I've done enough of it. You're forgiven. Go give it a shot. So what I really think all he's saying to us about what marriage is, marriage is a place where people mutually subject themselves to one another because they're trying to follow the, they're trying to imitate God. And as they do it, they have some unique roles and responsibilities, which go all the way back to the, the garden. My prayer is that for all of us in the church, that what we'll do is we'll go to God, whether we're married, or might be married someday, or might never be married, or have already been married, and, and that is out of the barn. The point is the principles are the same. I want to imitate God and I want to stop living in the darkness where I once dwelled. And I want to live as a child of the light. Because that, that is the way that a marriage works. And that is the way God gets his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gift of marriage and for what it shows us about you and about ourselves and, and about that one you've given us, if you've given us a wife. Lord, my prayer is that for each one of us, this chapter will be precious, but it'll all be precious, 1 through 19, 1 through 21. Lord, uh, yes, I need to learn more about how to love Diane. Yes, I need to learn more about how to lay my life down for her. But Father, I need to learn more about everything you said in this chapter, and, and I just pray that for each of us, that that will become um, some of our growth focus for the next few months. As we're listening to Isaiah, as we're doing some of these things from the uh, family home center, the, the fellowship at home center, God, I just pray that we would learn how marriage matters to you in our home if there's a marriage, and if not, the kinds of attitudes that you're trying to build in each one of us. Thank you. It's, for Je it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.